We are live. Hey, welcome everyone to Connected Learning TV. We're excited. We're in our third part of the series this month um, in September, which has been focused on back to school, creating the school year we'd like to live in. And we've been spending the month thinking about how you build classroom community, how you support inquiry. Today we're going to be talking about how you develop uh, classrooms that support students seeing themselves as experts and contributors to the learning space. Um, we're really excited. And I'm Kim Jackson. I'm an associate professor of composition and literacy at California State University, Chico, which is in Northern California. And what's exciting today is we also have people from all over the country who are on the webinar with us, which is from, we've got West Coast, East Coast, and the middle represented. Um, so it's exciting. Um, we're hoping uh, that today when you get to talk to Laura Gibbs and Kevin Hodgson and Jarrett Crone, that you'll post questions for us also on Twitter and tweet out to your networks. We're using um, the hashtag, this is my high tech um, prop here. We're using the hashtags connected learning and B2S for back to school. Um, you can also um, post questions in the Q&A part of the video. And we're also being co-streamed with a national writing project on educatorinnovator.org. So um, welcome. And before we begin, we're hoping everyone can do a little bit of an introduction. And Laura, I'm hoping you'll start us off, and then Kevin, and then Jarrett, uh, a little bit about who you are and where you are. Okay, can you hear me? Is that working? All right, so um, I get to represent, uh, I think, the uh, middle of the country, because I teach uh, for the University of Oklahoma, but I teach online. And so I live in North Carolina, so I'm doing... East Coast and Central Time here. I teach fully online courses in mythology and folklore and the epics of ancient India. Great. Well, um, I'm Kevin Hodgson, um, and it's uh, really nice to be here. And um, you know Laura from a number of different kind of online places, and Kim. Um, and I teach sixth grade out in Western Massachusetts. Um, so I guess I'm on the East Coast. Um, uh, the western part of the East Coast. <laughs> and um, I'm also um, a co-director of technology with the Western Massachusetts Writing Project um, and try to think a lot about um, digital literacies and um, how it's shaping and reshaping the way we think about writing and composition. Uh, my name is Jarrett Crone. Uh, I am a lecturer in composition and rhetoric at CSU Channel Islands. Um, that is in Camarillo, California, and actually this is my second year teaching coming down from uh, CSU Chico as a grad student, where I got to work with Kim, which was awesome. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Yeah, see, we've got the country kind of, I mean, I like that Laura kind of represents multiple parts of the country, um, and that you're fully online, so really you're just everywhere. It's, it's a great thing. Um, so we thought we'd kick off with the why question. Um, so, like I said, we're going to kind of think through the kinds of structures that we have in our classrooms that support students seeing themselves as experts and contributing to the learning. But I want to start with, like, why would we do that in the first place? Like, why would we want to share expertise um, in that way? And especially if you think about faculty, you're usually supposed to hold all the expertise. So why would we want to do that? And Kevin, I thought maybe I could have you start us off. Um, just thinking about it from an elementary perspective, you know, the why why would you go through the trouble and and then everybody can chime in? 
Sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, thinking about this idea of expertise and, um, and student engagement, um, you know, I think it comes from the idea of uh, trying to get that get students to kind of look at themselves and their lives a bit and and think about um, the things that they value and how to tap into those things they value to make it meaningful in a classroom and um, and sometimes uh, it takes um, it takes some kind of pushing out beyond the boundaries of what they expect school is too I think and maybe we see this at different levels that. Um, and I know over the last few years, as I've uh, really kind of talked to my students about things they do outside of school, particularly technology, um, I, I'm kind of floored by the, um, the things that they're doing around fan fiction and uh, video games and uh, video production, um, things that aren't always valued in our classroom, I would say. Um, and thinking about how to try to pull some of those into our kind of learning environment is a really key part, I think, of what um, I try to think about. You know, I hope I'm successful sometimes, and I know I'm not at other times, um, but the idea is to think about every student having that kind of value point that they can pull into the classroom community, and, you know, it also leads into teaching about empathy, too, about um, seeing, uh, seeing their classmates and seeing other people uh, in a much bigger picture than maybe they even imagine. And you know, the way you do that is by making people aware of the things that you're interested in and expertise. So uh, I think it has a lot of value. And certainly um, at the beginning of the year when, um, it, you know, I'll just talk from the elementary level. I mean, we spent a good part of the beginning of the year trying to build a sense of community in the classroom. And that, that includes getting to know students. And, you know, a lot of them know each other already because they've been following each other up from preschool to sixth grade and beyond, but I'm new to them, so I think it gives them a chance, too, to um, bring out parts of them that maybe even their classmates don't know. So, you know, that sense of expertise at the beginning of the year is really a key anchor that, um, that kind of moves us forward into uh, what we're going to do for the rest of the year, too. I think yeah. you're muted, Kim. Kim, you're muted. Thanks. You know, I don't click very well, so that's not my expertise, apparently. Um, Laura, I was going to have you chime in just because I think what's going to be immediately apparent is that um, this going from this sixth grade environment to fully online, um, and I think you're going to have different kinds, I would imagine, of uh, challenges in helping students see expertise. So I thought maybe we could pick up on Kevin makes a good point here about this idea of value point. Um, so why why do you have students you know think about students as developing expertise? But how do you find that out when it's a fully online environment and you're not just seeing them face to face every day? Yeah, that, that's what's really interesting about what Kevin said because on the one hand you think oh it's so different right because it's sixth grade it's not college it's in the classroom and I'm online but actually what I'm doing is exactly the same as what Kevin's doing and what he said about the big picture is what I'm trying to get at too you know is that that big picture our class whatever that thing is is composed of the expertise of all the students and so I have to find a way to build a space to let that happen and for me it happens through their blogs uh, everybody blogs right from day one of the class and one of the most important posts they have is their introduction post where they uh, talk about exactly the kinds of things that Kevin mentioned, the things they do outside of class, the things that are valuable, meaningful, important to them. And that those blogs become a kind of persistent 
network, which is great because, you know, in the first week of class, we're talking about back to school. It's overwhelming. There are these 80 people. I don't know their names. I don't, you know, five of them are named Lauren. It's confusing. But when they build this space of their own and they leave this trail of what they're interested in at the beginning of the class, week to week to week, it builds into something that is exactly like that kind of big picture that Kevin was talking about. And I just love it that way because I can't do enough for these students. It's fully online. I'm not in the room. There's no room for me to be in as the expert. And, and I'm great with that. I don't want to be the expert, but I need a way for them to be experts to each other. So we do it with blogs, and, and it works great. So why don't I go ahead and jump in. Um, so yeah, kind of following up with Kevin's, um, what he's talking about, about values and stuff like that. I feel like um, the beginning of every semester we have to do a lot of conversation and um, kind of rethinking and kind of reassessing values and what um, kind of real rigorous work can look like in the university. Um, so I try to like build off of things that they maybe are comfortable with, platforms that they that they do every day effectively. Um, you know they're great at telling stories through images. That's something that they that they do every day. They're uh, many of them, you know, are capturing moments of their life from morning <clears throat> to um, to evening when to when they go to bed. So part of what I'm having them do the first week is um, taking pictures as a way to construct a narrative about how their um, uh, about what their college experience looks like, and then comparing that um, that image with an image they're going to take later on in the semester. Um, and then start to make claims and um, some give some ideas about how they have changed as a student, how they've evolved as a person. Um, and so, yeah, I think they come in with this idea that, like, I'm, I'm just going to continue to do book reports. I'm going to continue to kind of employ this five-paragraph essay in, some, in whatever way I can. And so it's kind of this restructuring of ideas around, like I said, what, what real work can look like and that it is this broad range of things and not as narrowly defined as maybe they came in thinking. Oh my god, I'm totally, I always steal your assignments, so I'm stealing those <laughs> I really like the idea of the narrative of their college experience through image and then returning to that. And then, so now I'm wondering, like, all of you are kind of talking about, um, in some way there's this thread of like, both a getting to know and I'd like to hear Kevin talk a little bit more about that, like how you get to know what your students do outside your class, um, because Laura's already talked about blogs, and I love that as a way to get to know them. Jarrett's talking about image, so I'd be curious about that. And the other thing it seems like everyone's doing is kind of a disruption of the traditional model of you as expert and the student only as receiver of information. And so I'm wondering if we could maybe start to think about structures that we have in place that disrupt that. But Kevin, could you weigh in first on like how, I'm assuming you just talk to them, but I'll bet there's more to it than that. <laughs> just at, you know, how do you find out that they are writing fan fiction and things like that? Well, I think, uh, yeah, a big part of it is, um, is community meetings that kind of set the tone for the classroom and um, and how to move forward and you know you learn a lot from those 10 or 15 minute meetings in the mornings and actually <clears throat> this year has been kind of odd because um, we um, we had to um, expand all of our writing and math time in our day 
Um, for what uh, for us, what it's meant is that we've kind of locked that we had to take out part of that community building time in our mornings. And you know, you think five or ten minutes a day is you know that's not a whole lot of time, but we're really feeling it actually. Um, we're feeling a little disconnected from our kids, and um, and I'm sure they're not expressing it, but they probably feel a little disconnected from us as a community too. It's been it's been one of these kind of weird things going on this year, and um, we haven't quite sorted it out. Um, and it, it maybe we'll talk about this later, but um, there's a lot of tension between mandates that come down from the top, and um, and how to fit in the things that we see as having value, and and um, how to kind of keep that balance there. And um, there was um, um, there was a great piece um, like a week or so ago by uh, Bill Ferreter, um, who tweets his, uh, plugs us plugs us in, I think it is. Um, sorry, Bill. And, um, but he wrote about this, about you know, the tension that he feels about doing really creative projects where students are really pushing themselves, and then he gets standardized testing results back, and he does the worst on his hallway, and you know, he's called under the carpet for that. And you know, like, how do we kind of find those kind of moments? And so it's a struggle, I think, that we're going on. Um, but we do. We have a lot of conversations. Um, and um, actually, at the beginning of the year, we do uh, a lot of comics in our classroom. So uh, we do um, a project called Dream Scenes, which I just shared out the other day, um, where students write about their aspirations for the future in the form of a webcomic. Um, and so I know Jared's talking about image a little bit, and we talk about image as part of the compositional nature. And for me, it's a great starting point to have discussions as they're working, kind of one-on-one -on -one about, you know, why they want to go to MIT to become an engineer or open up their own bakery. Or, um, you know, uh, some of them wrote about being game designers and other things that, you know, right at the beginning of the year, it gives me a little insight into them and, and allows us to have a conversation about um, that's your that's your dream, you know, then. How are you going to get there? And that's part of what we're doing. So, yeah, I think it's a lot of talk. I mean, and uh, finding time to do that, um, you know, gets tricky sometimes. And I don't think we always, in education, at least in K-12, uh, value that as much as we should anymore, those kind of conversations. Yeah, I agree. And and uh, I find it incredibly challenging when I only see students sometimes three times a week for 50 minutes to, to get and and like Laura, I, I learn a lot about them through blogging. You know, I, I do find out through blogs. Um, I'm trying a new structure this semester. We've been reading Donald Miller's Reading in the Wild um, in two of my classes that are for future elementary school teachers. And um, we're playing a lot with notebooks as a way to trace learning reflection. And I'm hoping those notebooks also give me insights into... Um, their goals as future teachers and things that they already bring to our space that they're good at. Um, and, and actually what's funny, listening to both you and Jared, we've been playing, we've been drawing a lot more than uh, writing, than doing text. So we've been taking, for example, Donald Miller's ideas and drawing what our classroom space might look like based on all her principles of teaching reading and that's been an interesting way to as always happens, finding out someone who's actually really good at using visual to, to, tell, a, to tell an idea or to share an idea um, and getting recognized for that kind of expertise in ways that they may not have when they're only asked to describe through text. Um, and so I like how mo different kinds of modes can also bring that out for students as well. Um, Laura, what else do you do? I know you do tons of things. Besides, I know you guys have a wiki and some other things. Besides the blogging, what are the kinds of other structures that um, students participate in to take some responsibility in your classes? 
Well, um, they choose what different kinds of tools they want to use, and that's been something really interesting to see. You know, who likes to make memes, right? Making memes is great. Everybody can become like immediately a graphic design expert, right? Because they make a meme. They share those. Some people are really into Pinterest, and so they like to save stuff and share it through Pinterest. About half the class makes websites. And um, what I love is when there are students who have uh, some great technical abilities, and there are, they bring that back to the class. So I use a system called Tech Tips where it's extra credit, you know, because I'm not supposed to be doing all this technology, right? I'm supposed to be teaching the epics and mythology. But we use these tech tips where I can, you know, push them along. Do you want to learn how to do X, Y, Z? And then they can write tech tips where they share their expertise with the rest of the class. So I've got some people doing tumblers for their projects, and they're going to write up tech tips tips about how to do tumblers. Other people went and explored these things about blogger templates I never even knew before, and they shared that back with the class. And so if you just you know, open up that structure, like, like Kevin was saying, and just find out what people want to learn how to do, like what expertise do they want to gain, and then find out what they have and just come up with ways to share it. You know, it's not, it's not theoretically complicated. It's more like what Kim said at the beginning. It's just wanting to do it. And if you decide this is important and you want to do it, I'm sure everybody can find ways to do this in their classroom, online, whatever. You just have to, to want to make it happen. I think that, uh, um, sorry, Jared, if I'm jumping in on you here. I'm just saying something that you said, Laura, which is, um, you know, that, um, it's always fascinating to me, and it ties in nicely with this idea of expertise, is um, how um, quickly um, a student will discover a workaround, <laughs> and it goes viral in the classroom in, like, you know, five seconds. Um, and, um, and often those are the students that are not the kind of social top-of-the-ladder kids. Um, not that they're always the opposite either, but they're often not the ones, you know, le leading the class in um, whatever the kind of activity is when they're in their kind of natural state of kids being kids. Um, but the idea of um, they suddenly kind of discover something and um, and they are the expert in that moment is really a powerful um, a powerful thing to see. And also, um, you can't really you can't plan for it. Uh, I mean, you can hope for it. I think. But you can't kind of point to, you know, Bobby across the room and say he's the one who's going to discover, you know, how to get around this website block today, you know, whatever it is. Um, you know, I think that, you know, seeing those and kind of noticing those and bringing that to your attention to the class about what's happening, I think, is, is a really powerful moment of empowerment for kids who might not otherwise feel that social capital. Yeah, well, I think what's really cool there, Kevin, is you're right. You can't plan for those um moments, but you can make sure that they're seen as valuable, right? You can definitely, over time, your students can come to see that workarounds and subversion and other kinds of expertise, and even sometimes saying back to the teacher, you know, there's an easier way to do that than the way you're butzing with at the front of the room there. Um, the moments that you make sure that's okay, like, thank you. For doing, for telling me, thank you. For we'll make it happen. I think more. You know, I think then it's like, oh, that's okay to be like that in here. It's not making the teacher feel bad. It's. And if I could chime in about about writing, uh, yeah. but when the students share their writing, 
especially creative writing, it's so easy for them to show an expertise in a particular style, you know, and so when the students look at each other's writing and they say, oh wow, I never knew you could tell a story that way, because they've literally never seen a story told in whatever style it is that some other student used, they can learn that from each other in a way that they would never be able to for me. So it's not just about technology. I think we're kind of used to the idea that students can be technology experts. But in terms of writing expertise, I don't know what Jarrett does in his classes. I know Kevin does all kinds of fabulous creative stuff. I gave up the traditional expository type of writing a long time ago for creative writing. And students really can be experts in creative writing because they can bring the kinds of movies and TV and literature that they love into that writing and bring it to life that way and then that goes viral just like Kevin said somebody uses like a particular style of poetry to tell a story and then everybody else who saw that says I could do that I can try that too and and for me as a teacher that's the thing I love best because I think they will learn about technology on their own from each other but not necessarily about storytelling and creative writing so I love making a class that can be about that expertise too. Yeah, and if I could just comment a little bit on the idea that Kevin brought up about expert in the moment. I think that is, you know, in a phrase, exactly what I'm trying to do every day, is highlight those moments where students can emerge to take over the role. I mean, those are the golden moments when, um, when we can kind of step back a little bit, you know, and they can come to the forefront. Um, today we're working with narrative um, and <clears throat> pardon my voice, I've been sick for the last couple of days, so that's why it's like that. But anyway, we're working with um, narrative, and we're trying to trying to have them flesh out, um, um, you know, interesting characters and um, and um, kind of enliven their characters and enliven these settings that they're in which they're describing their um, their college experience. So you know, the complexity on their parents' faces when <clears throat> they. Um, you know, when they said goodbye as they left for college for the first time and how there was both sadness and uh, pride and joy and stuff like that. And so um, one of my students had just this, you know, amazing description um, of kind of his, his uh, process of capturing this picture and how it was, uh, it was kind of symbolic of these other things. So I love those moments when we can point out, like, you are doing something better than, like, I could ever do. Like, can you, can you lead us in showing us, how, like, that mindset or kind of how you went, went about this process because they all access these um, assignments um, from different perspectives and from different ways. Um, you know, the way I imagine an assignment and, and the way that they take up the assignment is completely different than the way that they may actually take it up. Um, so part of, the, part of like what I like to do is think of the syllabus and all of my assignments as flexible dynamic documents that evolve and take shape um, throughout the semester that aren't just kind of you know locked in place and you follow it um, that they kind of critique and ask questions about and um, feel open enough to kind of revise as we go um, so yeah Jared I, I know one of the things that you do um, that kind of riffs off of what Laura was talking about too um, that I'm going to make you share because I stole it at one point. But um, let's think about the ways that we make the student work public. Um, and and I like um, Kevin's point too that he's on our chat about you know not just the product but the process. And so Jerry, I, I thought you could lead us off. Can you talk a little bit about? Um, I know you don't do this practice all the time anymore, but you had a Tumblr review board that I stole. 
And one of the ways that we highlight uh, good, you know, to say a student is doing good work is uh, we have a winning Tumblr board, and students nominate um, blogs to to have put up there. So, I don't, Jared, can you say a little bit how you first? And and I know you have ways that you kind of still do that, make student work public. Yeah, sure. Um, so something I like to try to do with kind of whether it's we're thinking about what um, whether we're, whether we're considering like what useful feedback looks like or what um, you know students need from their fellow peers, what they need from me, and what they need from the space as a whole is kind of setting up some some norms for ourselves, setting up some criteria points that we can all kind of agree upon. So the idea with this blog. I haven't used Tumblr in a, in a few semesters, but um, you know you can kind of replace this idea with really anything. Um, is that they establish the types of criteria um, that make an effective blog, and maybe that criteria changes depending on what medium they're creating, whether it's a website or a blog or a, um, a graphic um, not novel, but you know a series of images or whatever the thing might be. So they create the criteria that they ultimately um, assess their peers upon. Um, and then, um, <clears throat> yeah, so, so they say, so they're kind of holding each other accountable for what, what great work looks like or what interesting ideas look like and kind of, you know, are, and in setting up this criteria are more comfortable in, in kind of pointing out moments where they think they could have taken certain ideas further or um, stuff like that. So. So as much as possible, I like the students to kind of be doing this work of uh, assessing ideas and evaluating, you know, the ideas that are being uh, brought forth by by all of the students. Kevin, how do you make your student work public? What are all What are all the different ways? Are the the web comics are published? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have a we have a classroom blog um, that we use. It's you know it's it's kind of it's become less of a publishing site and more of a launching site I think, um, and it's used in different ways. Um, um, our web comic site you can make comics public or not, um, and uh, you know we have a lot of privacy issues we have to keep in mind uh, with for kids who are under thirteen, um, so that's uh, at the forefront. Um, but you know, we have a class YouTube account where we, uh, when we do digital, digital stories and other things, we'll publish it up there. We have um, a SoundCloud account where we do podcasting. Um, we have our blog. We have a webcomic site. Um, we use um, a video gaming site, GameStar Mechanic, that allows you to share um, outside of the gaming uh, environment as well. Um, so it's one of those things where... Um, where we're trying to balance uh, protection of kids' identity uh, with uh, publishing an authentic audience and kind of how to find that balance line there. Um, and so, you know, all those things, I think, are just uh, things that we kind of keep in mind. And, you know, we put out our own kind of, you know, literary magazines and classroom from time to time, particularly around poetry and other things. And so I think publishing takes a lot of different forms, and some is... Um, more high stakes uh, publishing, and some is more low stakes publishing. Um, so, I think like podcasting for us, uh, I've often used it as a way to move from like a writing prompt um, into uh, kind of getting it out with your voice and kind of talking about um, 
you know, the idea of changing mediums. So Jared was talking about mediums a little bit earlier and just kind of thinking about, uh, you know, how, what shifts happen when you move from writing on the page to, you know, hearing a voice, um, you know, reading out the, the kind of writing and all those kind of things are, you know, just really fascinating to talk about even with 11-year-olds, uh, you know, because they often don't think about those kind of things. And so kind of allowing some kind of entry point um, to begin thinking about um, that, um, hopefully kind of pushes out into their lives outside of school too and gets them thinking of them more of the things that they're doing, the way they're communicating, which they don't always see as writing, you know, in their lives is writing. So I think it's interesting. Actually, yeah, I like when the when the writing disappears, right? It becomes you don't say I'm writing, you say I'm trying to do this thing. Right? I'm trying to do I'm trying to elect someone to president. And you're writing, but you wouldn't say, you wouldn't say I'm writing, right? You say I'm doing this other thing. I like that when students have those moments, right, where it just becomes a part, another resource that they can use to be heard. Yeah, it's and almost like um, you know the education system grabbed that <laughs> that term of writing and composition and jammed it into a nine to five day, and said anything you do outside of here, we're not going to consider writing. Right. Um, yeah. Meanwhile, they're texting. You know, they're posting comments on their favorite YouTube video. Um, they're kind of writing fan fiction and doing all sorts of things, uh, but they, in their head, don't think of that as writing because it's not valued in the school system. And so, you know, trying to, and I know a lot of people are doing this, is really try to push down those walls and make it more authentic that the things we're doing here, um, I mean, there's no way to know, they're 11 years old, what the, what, you know, what the world's going to look like when they graduate from college, right? I mean, it's impossible to know, but the skills you can teach them about you know, thinking about uh, communication and composition, hopefully transcend whatever weird technology or, you know, trends suddenly come along that we have no clue what it is, and, you know, that they'll have some skills to be ready for that world. I mean, you guys at the college, you have a little bit better sense of what the world looks like for a lot of them, uh, but <laughs> so far, a little bit, uh, but for us, it's just so far away that, you know, that it, it's, you know, you have to be general enough and yet uh, analytical enough, too, for them to navigate all that. Yeah. Actually, Kevin, that's, and I'll let Laura jump in here because I haven't. Um, you're reminding me, I, I say to often my future teachers, you know, um, I've got enough distance now that I know what, what it is about my fourth grade education that did or did not transfer to my adult life, right? And so all the time we spent learning handwriting, not so much, right? That That's not necessarily a practice that I use much anymore. But having a teacher who encouraged um, ways of being, like a little bit of no fear or trying out different kinds of modes. I had a teacher that was really interested in theater, so we did that, right? Like there were these, uh, like failure's good. Like I kind of learned that from some really good elementary school teachers that wasn't seen as a bad thing to reiterate. That has stuck with me. Like I think that's why I'm a gamer and a geek and all these other things because those identities are the things that I held, not necessarily the specific skills. Um, and so I, you know, that part's interesting. I, and I, then I want to go back really fast to what Jarrett said about these um, ways that you also make student work public. Um, when I stole this idea from Jarrett, one of the best things about it was I was then meeting with a small group of students outside of class time. And instead of being the bloggers, they were the readers of bloggers. And they were almost seeing behind the curtain of the classroom because we were meeting once a week for an hour. We were reading blogs together. We were developing the criteria that week for what makes a blog a good blog. 
which always changed. And so they almost could see what it was like to be the teacher, right? Like what kinds of decision rules do you have to make and, and how do you highlight? And then they were seeing the added effect of their peers being so excited that they were nominated by them to be the featured blog that week. Um, so there was that, that time, um, I think, where they felt kind of a, like they were getting insider special privileges or something, you know, even though it was college. And then, I, of course, they were, because they were a small group of a big class of 100, they were letting me in on things, the, the behind the scenes, right, what was really working in class and what wasn't. Like they were, we were getting comfortable. So um, I really appreciate that structure and I've tried to build it in, in other ways. Um, Laura, you want to jump in on any of this? We've, I've, we, I've cut you off like twice now. Oh, I, I'm just, I can relate so much to what everybody is talking about. And I guess the one thing I really liked about what Kevin was saying was this idea of the class as a group doing things together. And that's something that you really struggle with in, in higher ed because, you know, you've got these individuals, they're taking these classes, they're not in a cohort the way that Kevin's students are, and they're getting individual grades, and we haven't even talked about, you know, the disaster that is grading and how grading really confuses the business of what expertise is and how we acquire it. But uh, with writing, because it's holistic, because you need readers and you need feedback, I love the way that the, the, the expertise becomes naturally a collective kind of experience, right? So if I have great projects in the class every semester, and they're great projects every semester, and some of them get voted, you know, best in the class, but it's not even exactly a competitive kind of thing. If people are put off by the idea of nominations and all of that that Jared had mentioned, that's something I worried about too, but everybody has such a sense that, that we're achieving this together. You know, if you have a process that's shared all semester long where everybody is reading each other's stuff and you're sharing your ideas and your feedback and your expertise, when you end up with a bunch of really awesome products at the end of that group process, that collective class level process, everybody can feel good about it. And that's something that I try to do all the time is to promote the idea that, you know, we're here, we're this class. And we're so big, like in my myth folklore class, there might be 60 students. They don't even know each other all individually, but we're still a class because we're sharing all this stuff. And look, you can go look at it. Here it all is. It's 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 all together in this online space. And I don't know what size classes Jared teaches, but in some ways that that bigness is good because if we're talking about collective expertise, having more people around means you have a wider range of styles, topics, interests, experiences, expertise. So I didn't know if we're going to talk about class size, but I did want to advocate for the possibility of doing these kinds of inquiry-driven, shared, student-centered learning, even in classes that would rank as medium-large-ish at the college level. It's work for me. It's you just got to make sure that everybody in the class feels connected to some other people in the class, even if they don't know all the people and let the big picture take care of itself. Yeah, um, I've been thinking kind of a little bit about um, alternate ways that I can assess the work of students. Um, and part of this is my idea, I, I'm a kind of an active reader of Reddit. I'm, all, I'm on Reddit a lot and I'm interested in kind of how people can move from like new posts to hot posts, so the posts that get upvoted and shared the most. And so 
part of my idea for one of my one of my classes uh, last year was, which is a rhetoric class, was part, maybe part of my assessment can be how successfully and widely they can circulate these pieces of rhetoric that they create, whether it's about um, plastic bags, um, you know, other types of environmental issues, or other types of social cultural issues. Um, and I kind of like that a lot. So, so students kind of got into pairs, they got into groups, and kind of um, based on papers that they wrote previously in the semester, um, you know, got into some sort of similar common groups, and they created a common piece of uh, of rhetoric that had some sort of um, um, you know persuasive message about something. Um, and I kind of graded them for that final project on how widely they could circulate it and how well they documented that circulation of those pieces of rhetoric and how, how people kind of engaged and um, participated with those kind of outsiders from the world and how they kind of engaged with those pieces of rhetoric, the dialogue around those pieces of rhetoric. So I thought that was kind of a, um, I want to try to do that again this semester. I thought that was an interesting way to think about um, kind of assessment other than just you get an A, you get a B, you get like that kind of stuff. Did you get any pushback, Jarrett, from um, students who might say, um, I love your class, but you know, social media is not my thing, and I don't want to put my work out there? And so how does that fall into that kind of assessment? Always. So today, actually, is funny. <laughs> my, my students were trying to convince me that they're not internet people, which I don't, I don't get, because we were working with memes. And for the most part, no one really knew, or maybe they were just being timid. But they were, they were <coughs> excuse me, they were trying to tell me they weren't internet people. So th there's always a little bit of pushback, but I think, um, you know, through the use of their kind of meeting up with peers and getting in groups, um, you know, that, that pushback usually kind of dissolves a little bit. Um, but I'm interested in that, too, and how we kind of overcome that, um, you know, and I know these are things Kim's experienced because I've been in class with her, but students that want... Um, want to be told which direction to go in, right? And, and um, instead of kind of determining their own avenues for getting at ideas, they want you to lead them. And I think it's most interesting when um, um, you know when students don't when students don't just follow me, right? When I can follow them. That's that's the moment I love. Yeah, I remember going. I was asked to kind of visit a um, an undergraduate classroom. Um, at a local university, and uh, they wanted me to do like, a lesson around digital storytelling. I thought, this is great, you know, I'll go in, those 20-year-olds, I got to be excited. The, the room was like dead silent, they didn't ask any questions, and they just wanted to be told like what to do. So I, I couldn't believe it, it was, it was so bizarre. Um, and I think either they were intimidated by, you know, I'm not, I don't consider myself an expert at digital storytelling, but you know, maybe they perceived a stranger coming in, knew, knew all the kind of tricks of the trade or whatever it was, and it was just really bizarre. I was really hoping for, you know, them to really get engaged and kind of say, you know, and think about, um, I mean, they were, maybe they weren't internet people. <laughs> um, maybe that was my assumption going in, right? There's got to be a meme about I'm not an internet person now, you know, Jerry, we got to get that going. Um, but, uh, but that idea of self-perception, I think, too, um, you know, we see that um, a lot in, um, and Laura knows this too, because we kind of run in some of the same online kind of inquiry circles. And Kim, you know that um, even people who join in there, who are on the periphery, part of the kind of the community that they're kind of watching happen, when really um, they are, if, you know, when they just take that step in, 
and also then the opposite is trying to value those people too in their contribution of, um, I mean, we'll try to move away from that lurking kind of um, concept because I think that has too much negative baggage with it, but the idea of um, trying to watch before you take your first step and if you're in there, how do you help people take that first step in? Yeah, you know, um, Kevin, you're actually picking up on a question we got earlier on Twitter, um, which is, you know, when does when do things backfire, or what do you do when when uh, tech things or whatever in the classroom or, or anything? It doesn't be tech; it could be writing backfires. And when the question got posted, I thought, well, every day something bad. I never leave teaching and like nailed it, like ever. Like, always walk out I just I, there's something about getting more comfortable with that like knowing in some ways it's all an experiment and I'm trying something out and sometimes it doesn't go the way people don't take it up the way I thought they would or they do something more interesting or or silence or whatever um, the I want to I really do want to get the we're not internet people trending <laughs> almost every time I do a workshop Someone asks, um, and I know Laura gets this all the time, someone asks, how much time do you spend on the web? And I think, all of it. Like, <laughs> all, all the, what do you even mean? Like, all the time. Um, I take walks. I just hashtag it walking in Capay. You know, I'm still Instagramming <laughs> when I'm on my walk. So I know we're not Internet people. I like, all the time. Um, so yeah, I'm wondering about if you guys sharing, you know, the backfiring. I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I expect it. I value the backfiring. It doesn't scare me. So I don't, in that same way. Um, so I wonder what experiences you've all had with, yeah, it didn't work. Um, if I could chime in about that, I found a, a system, a new system for this semester that I'm really liking because I've always used growth mindset stuff. Um, in the background of my class in terms of designing the class around the idea that you just revise everything all the time, nothing's finished, there's good things, there's mistakes, whatever, you're just constantly revising and that's natural for a writing class. But this semester I decided to take that growth mindset and actually make it a, a topic for the students to engage in if they want. It's optional but uh, it's going well. I mean, a lot of students are interested in doing this. And for me as a teacher, it is such a great rhetorical option to have where if a student had something go not well, I can turn that around and say, make that your growth mindset challenge for this week. So this fantastic student, great writer, she turned in this story that was colossally long, like way too long for other people to read. And she just gotten excited and hand checked the word count at the end. So it was way too long. And so, I didn't want to just tell her, oh, this is long, you have to make it shorter. I said, why don't you make that your growth mindset challenge for the week to shorten up that story and you can help me write a growth mindset challenge to share with all the other students about what do you do when you have something that's too long, you want to shorten it up or need to shorten it up. And that worked great because she got feedback, she worked on the story, she wrote a growth mindset challenge to share with the other students. It's just you know, I'm not into panaceas. It's not a panacea, I guess, but it's the closest thing to a panacea that I've found for backfires because it just folds it right back into the class. It's like every backfire, whatever we want to call it, becomes another opportunity to play another growth mindset game in the class. So it's that's been working great for me this semester. Um, 
Yeah, I, I'm with you, Kim. That every day I walk out saying that didn't go the way I thought it was going to go. <laughs> um, yeah, I can't think of any like uh, you know huge tumbles that you know put things in jeopardy in my classroom kind of thing. Um, but um, I think that you know you have to, um, I, or me don't have to. I feel like I have to kind of push things and see where they go. And um, it doesn't mean I go in willy nilly and not think through the possibilities for my students because that would be irresponsible. But I don't always know where things are going to end up. Um, and um, and I'm pretty much okay with that for the most part. I think that. Um, uh, you know, things go in certain directions, and you have to make adjustments. And um, I think the worst time—it's not even that bad, but it's kind of funny—is uh, we were uh, we were studying some Shakespeare um, in our kind of um, origins English language kind of unit. And um, on our on our web blog at the time, I had embedded this you know Shakespeare insult generator, which of course I should have thought about, right? But I did try, and it looked cool, and it was fine. And you know, the kids get on there, and, and of course, it starts pulling up really inappropriate Shakespearean <laughs> insults for sixth graders. And it just happened to be the time where uh, you know the web the web log was under maintenance, so nobody could access and kind of you know get rid of the <laughs> generator. Uh, it's just one of those weird moments when you realize I'm really probably not in control as much as I'd like to be um, in this moment. Um, but it was fine. But it was just kind of you know the unexpected I think happens, and that's. If it didn't happen, I think teaching would not be very exciting if everything always went according to plan. Yeah. You know, even as you guys are talking, I've been thinking that my backfire would be um, something that I set up that got in the way of a student participating. That would be a backfire. Like if I created a structure and there was only one way to do it and then a student couldn't find a way in, that would be a backfire. And I think I've gotten, I'm still not there, but I've gotten better at offering up multiple ways into an assignment so that that doesn't happen. Um, but just recently on our campus we've changed our wireless network and on any given day I have five or six students who can't connect to the web. And um, our IT has been very responsive uh, to their credit. They're, they're trying to solve the problem. But, but they're kind of okay with five or ten students not being able to be on the network. And I've had to explain that I can't have one student who can't like that I can't create a structure for example they blog across my sections they have blogging buddies across sections and I like to use the first 10 minutes sometimes on Mondays where they're responding to that partner to that colleague well if I have five students who have to leave the room to go find a space that I can't do that structure anymore and so I've moved to pen and paper and swapping pen and paper which is a technology it's fine it's just not ideal because I don't have the same kind of record but um, so I, I, I in my more thoughtful self I think a backfire for me would be oh I created this thing and now a student can't access it or um, not every student can access it and I think really carefully about about that Kind of reminds me of uh, something that Bud Hunt once wrote. I don't know when it was, but he was talking about true technology, kind of, um, or, or thinking about how technology can push learning. That if you have a backup plan, then it's not. <laughs> um, but the reality is, you know, our wireless goes down too sometimes, and I'm like, oh, you know, I, the whole day was going to be, you know, spent doing whatever it was, and. And now I gotta go to Plan B, and I don't really have a Plan B right now because <laughs> Plan A was the plan. 
Um, so it's just kind of you know interesting that we're still, I guess particularly in this country, if you read about like how other parts of the world, particularly in Asia, right, where the kind of broadband everything is really much more stable, much more faster, that you know we're really behind the curve in that way of uh, still trying to um, you know access and um, access across not just the wireless in my school, but for my kids who don't all come from wealthy homes, you know, access is still an issue. So let's go back to, um, Laura started to bring up something we haven't addressed and, and usually um, people wish that we would, <laughs> um, which is this um, thought about assessment. Um, I, I know that most of us are not super big fans of I'm not a fan of grades. I have to. I have to be honest. I'm not a fan of grades. I am a fan of assessment. I am a fan of knowing, uh, you know, where my students are doing well, where they're having a hard time, and how I can move move them. They don't have to move in the same way, but I'm moving them, and I'm moving myself in in some way towards an activity. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, Kevin. I know that you think yes about badging and those kinds of things. Yes, is that? Is that fair? No. Okay, well, we'll get Peter Kittle weighed in. <laughs> or maybe some of you have played with the idea of, of badging. I'm wondering about that as a solution um, or just how you do approach assessment. Um, I use portfolios, and I do a lot with uh, portfolio grading and honoring the process and having students write a lot of reflections and statements and memos around the work that they produce. So that's one way I work with it. What, what are the rest of you do as far as as assessment in these messier classrooms. Um, I've, I've got a lot to say about this. I think about it a lot. And uh, in terms of, Kim mentioned in the chat, the affordances of being online, you know, one of the things that, that happens when you're online and you don't have that default space of the classroom is that you really can make everything that the students do visible in some way. You know, either they, they, they do it, they make it, they share it, they, they engage somehow. And so the way I do the grading is that there are probably like over the course of a semester, like 150 things that students do week by week. They read, they write, they respond, they create, they reflect, they do all these things. And I just, you know, they're each worth a couple points. And they go in the, the learning management system. We use D2L and they take what's called a quiz, but it's not really a quiz. It just says, I did X. Yes, true, true, false quiz. And they accumulate all these points, and they get a grade at the end of the semester, you know? And it's not a competitive grade. They're not being assessed one against the other. But it's a process grade because it's about all the stuff that they've done. And because I have faith in the process, I have faith that if they do these 150 or 200 things, it's a lot of stuff, they will have learned a lot by the end of the semester. And so that's really worked for me. And some students then can use it. It's a way to say, you know, this is a gen ed class. I'm really busy with other things. I've got a full-time job. I've got three kids. I'm taking a capstone class. I set it up so that they can just, if they want to get a C, they get a C. They don't do 200 things. They do 130 things, whatever. So it's ultimately kind of arbitrary the way all grading is, but it is a way to be flexible and let them make choices, you know, because this theme of choice has been coming up again and again. There are all kinds of expertise we could hope students achieve. I think letting them choose what kinds of expertise they want to fo focus on and then finding a way to, to let that be reflected in the grading is really important. We can't get away from the grading, but if you can let them make choices, focus on the process, 
it is possible to do grading in a way that's not detrimental. That's my biggest hope, I guess. Yeah, if I could just pick up on that, that idea of students having um, the choice and how we view their work or the work that they think wants, uh, um, is best kind of representative of them. Um, I really like this kind of writing studio idea um, uh, that I've done on Prezi before. Typically Prezi is about um, kind of creating presentations, but I've used it just kind of as a space um, where people can construct um, kind of, you know, um, Connect, connected ideas and construct kind of ideas moving outward. Um, and I've used it as a place where they can um, kind of post their best writing and like I was talking about before, um, setting up criteria for what that best looks like and why they think um, the writing that they've chosen, whether it's five or six pieces, um, sec sections of their paper, whether it's um, certain types of feedback they gave to one of their peers on a certain day, um, you know, anything, really any of that kind of work of the class as, we have, as we've looked at it. And it lets them kind of choose and frame the way that we perceive them at the end of the semester, or, or rather perceive um, the quality of their work. And so I really like when they have a kind of a, a role to call attention to these highlight points. And I guess typically the writing studio is where, you know, people, you know, um, write everything down, right? It's like not just their best ideas, but it's everything. But I guess in this case, it's more it's more kind of the highlights, it's the, uh, it's the highlight reel of their work from the semester. And so I, I really like giving them that, that chance. Hey, Kevin, how do you balance um, the, you know, institutional desires for assessment with uh, maybe what, how do you, do you, you must augment, you must do other things that you like for assessment in addition. Yes? Is that... Yeah, I think it's a combination of what actually, um, you know, we're all saying here, which is a lot of reflective writing on the parts of students, um, um, trying to set up, um, you know, rubric style wide enough for every student to be successful, but specific enough to talk about some skills they're getting at, which is what, you know, the administrators on one hand want to see, and parents, so, you know, our students, we're not just <laughs> we're not just teaching students. We're also kind of dealing with parents who also want to know what they're learning, not rightfully so. Um, and um, and so trying to pull that all together. But you know, I still struggle with the assessment of digital digital work and kind of what it looks like, and um, and kind of grapple with the uh, grapple with the things that make sense. And, and I think it's the reflective writing that for me is the best kind of part of seeing what students have learned and how to kind of assess that. And like I like Jared's idea of Prezi because it's like this huge, never-ending kind of canvas, right? You can even hide pieces of your writing on there if you wanted. Um, and yet it's all kind of there together. Um, and we are, um, um, you know, we've done... We've done some writing portfolios in the past, but I'm gonna. We're this year that kind of pushes into some digital portfolios. So I'm trying to really kind of learn more myself about you know what what that looks like and how best to pull it into our classroom for all our students um, and kind of move forward with that. Um, so um, and I think I have Troy Hicks you know book on assessment downstairs that I'm hoping will unlock all the doors for me. <laughs> Count on him. Yeah. I always hope that his book is <laughs> um, In a, the limited time we have left, I'm going to make you, I'm hoping you'll, I can't make you do anything. I'm going to ask you to do something hard. Um, so new teacher, if you think about a new teacher, 
um, what would be your sound bite? Um, like day one, how would you help students know this is a class that's going to value what they think? So what would be, you know, a structure you could suggest for my new future teachers? And you have to do it sound bitey. Um, I vote for creating a space where you can see what students are doing. And that's going to be different in a classroom. It's going to be different online. But this theme of space has come up over and over again here. And how do we create a space that's about the students and their expertise. What is that going to look like? If you think about that, I bet great things will happen. Um, I think, uh, you know, coming in with the philosophy that the, the students are going to be the teachers of the classroom, you know, and um, not that you're giving up any of your authority as the teacher, um, but that you're open to turning things over to their interests is uh, one way to go. Yeah, and just building in structures where there are loose parameters, but plenty of them, plenty of room for them to swim, um, and to just have conversations around what kind of their expectations of rigorous writing looks like, um, and and kind of the writing and work that they're doing already, and how some of those interests can fit into um, some of our purposes in academia. Love it. You know, and I, Laura, I love your stuff about space because you can you can make a wall in your room, right? It doesn't even be a virtual space. It could be a wall in your room where my my highlight reel. Maybe students even choose. Here's the thing I want on the wall this week. What's and it could be a sentence. It could be an image. It could be whatever. Or it's a virtual space where it's shared out. So it just seems so doable that you would just have that up. Um, I want to thank you all for such a great conversation. Uh, I have to wrap up the third in this series and I can't wait to rewatch because this one had a lot of ideas I will now steal <laughs> and tweet about as if they were my own. <laughs> I'll give you credit. Um, so we're hoping, we have to end the conversation, but we're hoping if you want, you can continue the conversation on Twitter using the hashtags. I always have to use hashtag connected learning or B2S for back to school. Um, we'll have connected learning folks, uh, Liana, will have a full video recording available too for archive on connected learning TV. And uh, a really cool thing that you can sign up for is the newsletter if you go to connectedlearning.tv. Um, you can sign up for their email newsletter, and it gives you uh, the upcoming events, um, including the one that's next Tuesday, 4 o'clock Pacific time. And we're going to end this month um, talking about nurturing our professional lives. So how do we nurture our own growth in a very busy semester? And I'm so excited because we get to talk with Mina Ramey, who wrote the book Thrive, and Paul Hankins, and Wendy Farone, and Kim Duyard. And they're all really amazing K-12 educators who do find a way to nurture their professional lives. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that conversation. So thanks again, everyone. Have a great evening or afternoon. Thank you, Kim. Thank thanks. you, everyone.